My two favorite messages to preach in any series are the first one, because I get to introduce a brand new book of the Bible that we'll be spending time in to you all, and then the last one, because I, I have ADD and I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm ready to, to move on to another one, uh, but uh, it I does give me an opportunity to say next week we're going to be uh, starting a, a, just a four-week series of messages from what I not jokingly call maybe the weirdest little book in the Bible, uh, the book of Jude. It's tucked away at the uh, end of the New Testament, and yet it is so timely for us and where we find ourselves right now. So that will be starting next week, but today we will be concluding our series of messages from First Peter that has been around the theme of being an exile. We have learned in in 1 Peter, that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been exiled from the world. We are no longer a part of this place which we have always called our home. And knowing that and thinking about that, I want you to ask yourself a question as we get started this morning. Why do you need a church home? Think about that. Why do you need a church home? Now, the answer to that question in modern times is driven almost entirely by individualistic concerns. Well, I, I, need a, I need a church home so that I can get good religious content that will inform my faith. I need a church home that provides me a variety of opportunities to uh, grow more both relationally and spiritually and intellectually. I, I need, frankly, a, a place that will give me something constructive to do, you know, various activities that will be made available to us. Almost all of our answers to the question, why do I need a church home, are driven by individualistic concerns. And that's because in the modern world, particularly in American culture, the church is seen as a delivery system for religious goods and services. I need a good delivery system for those kinds of, of services. But let me ask you something. What if instead you said, I need a church home because I am so other and so isolated from this world that I desperately need to be with other people like me. You see, the reason that church is seen as a delivery system for religious goods and services now is because we no longer really feel our exile. We no longer really feel our isolation. I could go across the street to our offices, walk out the front door, and I can see two churches, the Antioch Campus of Blue Valley and the Presbyterian Church, just right down the road. I mean, churches are everywhere, even in a, uh, an area like Kansas that isn't typically defined as being a part of the Bible Belt. I mean, we can find churches anywhere, a county of... Johnson County size of about 550,000 people, about 100, 125,000 people going to be in church today. Now, that's nowhere near the majority, but I mean, we can find people who are, are followers of Jesus, who, who go to church. We don't feel our exile. But the truth of the matter is, if we don't feel it right now, I really believe we're going to feel it more and more. We're going to feel our exile. We're going to feel our isolation. And if we 
began to conceive of our need for church in terms of desperation to be with other people, how might that change our conception of church? I believe that it probably would give us a very low tolerance for the superficial way that people choose a church home, and it would give us a very low tolerance for the pettiness that so often derails churches. So what should a church look like and be for a group of desperate exiles who just really need one another? Well, that's what Peter is going to be addressing in this second of a two-part message on an exile's church. So I hope you found 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's walk through the final verses of uh, this book together, and we're going to see that the first thing that should characterize an exile's church is humility. An exile's church should be characterized by humility. Look at verse 5. He says, likewise, now remember, he, he has been talking about leadership, what the, the leadership structure of a church should look like. And then he says, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Now, the word elder has been used in the first four verses to reference a distinct group of leaders who shepherd or lead the church, the pastors, the elders of a church. And now he is using the word younger, which absolutely means younger chronologically in age than the elders. So the question then becomes, why is he singling out young people? And the answer is he's not, because that younger word is probably referencing being younger chronologically in the faith than the elders who are by and large older chronologically in faith. I believe that he is now transitioning having talked to all the leaders of the church as elders to talk to all of the congregants and that is triggered when it says in uh, the remainder of verse 5 clothe yourselves and then he says all of you which lets us know he's talking to everyone now, not just the elders, but all of you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now, what is humility? Genuine humility is putting the needs of someone else ahead of your own. And he is saying, all of you, church, need to put the needs of the other exiles in your body ahead of your own. Peter is not alone in saying this. Paul, a man who wrote significant portions of the New Testament inspired by God, said the same thing, most famously in Philippians chapter 2, where he encouraged those Christians to have the mind of Christ in putting the needs of each other ahead of their own. He is saying then that a church should be characterized by individuals who are self-sacrificing for the benefit of everyone else, knowing that everyone else is self-sacrificing for them. Humility. And then he, he, he drops this. You need to do this because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How might we see that manifest itself? I think in a very simple way, in either the presence or absence of church conflict. Almost every church conflict is driven by some 
group or persons thinking that their needs are not being met or their voice is not being heard. And so elevating themselves, they put themselves forward. And we always wonder why the church never flourishes out of conflict. It's the reason God opposes that kind of thing. He opposes that. What he will bless, however, what he will give grace to is a group of people who are putting each other the needs of one another first. So the first thing that should characterize a, an exile's church is humility. The next thing that should characterize an exile's church is reliance. Reliance. Let's look at verse 6. He says, humble yourselves. You say, okay, I get it. He's still talking about putting other people first. No, no, he's not. He's making a shift here. Humble yourselves, therefore... Under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. So he shifted here. It's subtle, but it's very important. He's saying an exile's church should be typified, characterized by each individual putting the needs of the others first. And it should also be characterized by that church humbly submitting themselves to the will of God for them. Now, now, the, the stew in which all of this is cooking, in fact, the entire book of 1 Peter is cooking, is the, the presence of or the almost certain arrival of persecution of the church. They are all sensing, they are all feeling their otherness in in persecutory ways, the, 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 the culture around them and these churches that Peter was writing to was starting to identify them as others and, and doing what we tend to do, which is demonize otherness and beginning to come against them at the local level. And, and so when God's people who believe themselves to be cared for by God suddenly begin to experience difficulty, hardship, even persecution, it becomes a very natural thing to say, God, where are you in all of this? I thought you were going to care for me. I thought you were going to provide for me. God, I thought you were going to keep your people safe in this world. And what Peter is saying is that's clearly not the case. What you have to do is in the face of this opposition that you're either experiencing or is coming, you need to humble yourselves under the hand of God and trust that he will take care of you. But what happens if you get all anxious, if you can't keep the... the, the the concerns at bay, he says this, that you are to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's, it's simple. He's saying we need to submit ourselves to the will of God. And when it, when it reaches a point where we're starting to, to question God's care for us, we're to not run further from him, we are to run to him, acknowledging that he is really all we need. We don't need cultural or societal or political power. We just need Jesus. We don't need relative wealth. We just need Jesus. We don't need safety. We just need Jesus. And for people who are exiles in this culture where we have a tremendous amount of privilege still, even though it's eroding, I get that, still as Christians, 
we actually have to switch that, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you kind of thing, to saying, God, you're all I want. You're all I want. Can we say that? Honestly, that God, Christ Jesus, is all we want. I'm reminded of a movie that will date me from the 70s called The Jerk by Steve Martin. He is an imbecile who suddenly acquires great wealth. And very suddenly, it's all taken away. And when they show up to take everything away, he says, you know, this thing, that's all I need. And that's, that's it. That's all I need. I need that too. So he reaches down, he grabs that. It was an ashtray. And that's it. And that's all I need. I need, I need this book and that ashtray and that lamp. And that's it. I just need those three things. I want that too. And so by the time he gets out the door, he's just got an arm full of junk and says, and that's all I need. Well, I'm afraid that we're very much like that as followers of Jesus who have so much in our culture. I just need Jesus, Matt. All I want is God. But I want that too. And that's it. That's all I need. And I want that. And so we're just carrying around all of this stuff, but we're making ourselves feel better about it by saying, but really all I want is God. Listen, we all of us, if we're going to make it, had better get to a point where we recognize I don't need or want anything else but God. That should be one of the characteristics of an exile and an exile's church. Next, an exile's church should be characterized by vigilance. This may be the most widely known verse in uh, the book of 1 Peter. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let me take a little detour here. Always a little bit concerned when someone has made that their life verse. Because it usually indicates that they view themselves as some kind of watchman on the wall to alert the church to the, the, the work of the devil and all of the existential threats that exist in the local church. And here's how I know if that's someone's life verse. They usually have a website. And the reason I know they have a website is because you send me links to those websites. And I'll get an email, a text message, oh, pastor... I just read this online, which is every pastor's favorite thing to hear. I, I just read this, or I just saw this online, and I'm, I'm worried, I'm concerned. This person says there is this threat, and I think, well, I'll look at it. And so I click on the link, and then I have to click out of that ad, and I have to click out of that ad, and I have to click out of that ad, and then I have to click out of the request for a donation. And then I think, well, who are these people? I go to About Us. I realize they have no other job, not the church. Not in the secular world, no other job except to monetize fear among believers. We have to be alert that sometimes the roaring lion that Satan is using is the person who's saying, look at the roaring lion. But I digress. The threat 
to individual Christians and individual churches by Satan is real. It's real. And we do need to remain vigilant for it. So how do we remain vigilant for it? Here's what he says, verse 9. Resist him. That speaks the idea of active resistance. Not just in a moment's need resisting, but active daily resistance. How do I resist the devil? By being firm in your faith. By constantly developing the vitality and the strength of your relationship with Jesus Christ. An active resistance of the devil and his work by deepening my faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, knowing that the difficulties that I am facing are not unique to me, that everyone who is faithful to Jesus will at some point experience the otherness of their faith. Maybe to a growing degree as the days go about. So we do need to be vigilant. We do need to be on guard and watching for the existential threats that do exist to the church by actively resisting the work of Satan by simply growing in your faith. What's the best thing you can do to keep from being sick? Remaining healthy. That's the best thing that you could do, is to remain healthy, practice good habits, resist the devil, not by trying to flip over every digital rock to find the latest threat, but by spending more time in here than you do online and on the stinking television. And that's resistance. So be vigilant. should characterize an exile's church. Next. An exile's church should be characterized by hope. Characterized by hope. Acknowledging that suffering is there. Verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's important for us to hear what Peter is promising here. He is not promising that the, the, the season of suffering will pass in this life and everything will be good again. What he's promising is heaven. What he's promising is God himself. Yes, we may face hardship and difficulty in this life and in this world, but when we close our eyes in death, we will fly to Jesus. And when we do, we will have him forever. And I'm afraid often Christians talk about that like it's the lovely consolation prize for losing. I really want to live. But if I die, I guess I get heaven. What? What? It's not that you get heaven and green grass and 85 degrees. You get God. 
again, one of my favorite pastors wrote a book called God is the Gospel. He is the good news. This is, this is who he, he is, and this is what he wants to give us. He wants to give us himself. He doesn't want to give you a mansion and streets of gold. All of that just points to the glory of the one who lords over it all. You get, God, hope in that. And then to kind of underscore it all, he says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you're dismissed. No, you're not. That should be a benediction. Uh, maybe it will be. I'll talk to Micah about it. We need a new one. But he's reminding everybody what you get is God and he's overall. An exile's church should be characterized by that hope. And then finally, an exile's church should be characterized by encouragement. I love these verses at the end of these books like this in the New Testament, these letters, um, because they're so personal. Now, for most of us, let's just be honest, they're throwaway. I mean, you blow right through them so you can get to the next page, go to the next book. But there's something to see here I think is very important. He says, By Silvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Silvanius was in all likelihood his scribe. Peter spoke. Silvanius wrote it down. It was then as a message delivered to the church. But note the purpose of it. It was to declare the true grace of God. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Stand firm in that. Put your home, uh, hope in that. It's an encouragement that he is giving. Then he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. What is all of that about? Well, it's hard to say definitively, but probably the very best understanding of she is a church. And to understand Babylon as Rome. So he is saying the church at Rome, where I am writing all of this, sends you greetings. So it would work like this. They heard that I'm writing a group of churches that is about to undergo, if not already, persecution. To encourage them. And when they heard about it, they said, Well, you, you tell them that we really are praying for them. You tell them they're not alone. We're here with them. And then... His, his son Mark is not his biological son Mark. It is his son in the faith. So Peter is, is encouraging Mark to grow in his faith. And Mark also, as a believer in Jesus, probably a part of that church in Rome, is sending his greetings as well. So encouragement is, is being offered by other believers to other believers. And then he closes in verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So to demonstrate that, I want everybody right now to stand up, turn to people around you, just kiss them, right? I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But you get the idea that the church was, was typified by a warmth and an intimacy that should characterize churches today. It's easy to be anonymous 
in a large suburban church. It's easy for a church to only be a delivery system for religious goods and services. But if it remains that, you can never experience the encouragement that a church is supposed to be. And so this is what a church ought to be like. Inhabited by people who put others first. Inhabited by people who are completely, totally reliant on God. That he is not only all they need, he is all they want. It is a church that is vigilant who remains vigilant against the the efforts of Satan to take down individual churches and individual Christians by each individually and collectively as a church deepening and rooting our faith in him. It is a church that's characterized by hope, understanding that regardless of what might come, we get God forever. That's pretty good. And it should be characterized by us mutually encouraging one another. To which typically we all go, amen, and then don't think about how that happens. So let me, in closing, give three bits of guidance that might help us all as individual Christians move towards creating and maintaining here at Blue Valley a church that looks like that. First, let me speak to our unique moment. Let me speak to those who are joining us online right now. Part of church becoming this for you online, for all of us, is to ask ourselves, am I continuing to worship online out of physical necessity because of my health or because it just got pretty easy? And if it is honestly being answered because it just got to be pretty easy, it's time to come back. It's time to come back. Blue Valley's doing great as far as people coming back. Far ahead of the curve. Way over 70% uh, now, which is unheard of for churches. But it's not about the percentage of people that we have back from pre-pandemic. It's about being a church where people have lashed themselves together. So if, if your honest answer is, I'm not doing this for health reasons, it's just because it's convenient time to come back. So for the rest of us, The next thing we need to ask is this. Am I maintaining, even though I'm present, the idea that church is a delivery system for religious goods and services by not really connecting with other believers in Christ at the personal, cellular kind of level? The mechanism for us to do that is Sunday school. And so let me encourage you, if if you're very faithful to be here, to deepen your relationships with one another by being active in Sunday school. And then finally, let me encourage you to do this. You're going to be hearing a lot in the new church year, which starts September 1st, the 21-22 church year, about the importance of moving past Sunday school to getting into discipleship groups. Uh, Pastor Jonathan has created a wonderful, sustainable plan for in-depth discipleship. It's not fancy. It actually trusts the Word of God to be the Word of God, and that's the curriculum. It's the Bible. And the Bible is read. The Bible is memorized. People talk about what God is saying to them in their reading and in their reflection on God's Word. They challenge one another. 
They hold one another accountable. They do that. They grow in their faith. And at the end of a year or so, it scatters. And each individual takes someone else. And they do the same thing. Because ultimately, our active resistance to the work of the devil will require us to do active growth in our own lives. Those are just three things that we can do. Personal choices we can make, decisions we can make that will bring us further and further into a reflection of what Peter holds out for us. The people to whom he was writing were in their churches with the only other Christians in town, maybe in the dozens. They didn't have a lot of choices. They were a part of a church family with the only other believers in town. They needed each other, and they knew it. Let's make sure we know it as well. Let's go to the Lord.